Welcome to Movie Moments, discussing the greatest movies of all time, plus all the newest films in theaters and streaming. Like us, rate us, share us. Here are your hosts, Mike Rags and Chuck Curry. All right, we're back. Another edition of Movie Moments. Mike Rags and Chuck Curry talking about the greatest movies of all time and new ones that are in theaters or streaming today. As we head closer and closer to Christmas, we got through the Thanksgiving season and uh, some new movies have come out. Chuck got a chance to see Napoleon, and I got a chance. I got a chance to see one of the worst streaming movies that you could possibly see too. So uh, that is brand new Mm -hmm. and out uh, as well. Uh, And uh, great interview coming up on the show. You heard Chuck there in the background. He's uh, he got a chance to sit down with the great director Andrew Davis, who's re-releasing one of his first films. Uh, Chuck will talk to him about that and will and about his career as well. And speaking of his career, career, we teamed up with Tommy Lee Jones three times. Uh, and we figured let's do the best of Tommy Lee Jones. Tommy's got a new movie out on streaming called The Burial, which is actually pretty good. I saw it and talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Jamie Foxx. Uh, if you want to take a chance uh, and uh, take some time and see that on Prime Network, you can. But we'll do our 10 favorite Tommy Lee Jones um, performances coming up in honor of Andrew Davis. Big interview later on. Chuck, uh, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing good. A little under the weather. Doc yeah, I guess you're a little slow on the uptake there. You're all right. I think I'm, I think, well, I don't know. It's debatable. It depends on who you might ask. Some people might say I'm not really doing well. Some people might say, I think I'll live to see another day. So we'll see how this plays out. Hopefully I'll be on (laughs) next week's broadcast. All right. Well, uh, Andrew Davis coming up in just a bit and new movies that are out for the holiday season. Thanksgiving, uh, a little underwhelming as far as family fare can go, unless you want to see Disney's uh, The Wish, uh, which uh, I really have no interest in seeing. Uh, and Napoleon, the other big film that's out in theaters. And Chuck, you got a chance to see it Thanksgiving weekend. Your thoughts on the Ridley Scott epic film? Actually, I sat in a theater yesterday uh, and I watched it. It's two hours and 40 minute running time. Uh, Ridley Scott, 85 years old now, directs Joaquin Phoenix as the star. Uh, the, yeah, I'll give you the pluses first. Uh, visually, it's a really good looking movie. I mean, the battle sequence, especially the battle, the last battle in this film is extremely impressive. It's very raw. How they shot, like the, the use of sh- shooting cannons uh, on an open battlefield. I mean, this all look really real. I don't know, uh, some practical, the, com- the combination actually was pretty impressive. Um, here's my issue with the film. I, I didn't dislike it, but I can't tell you that I really liked it. I felt that the script was extremely thin. Uh, I felt uh, jo- Joaquin Phoenix is Napoleon. Uh, I didn't really learn about really. I didn't learn a lot about what made this man tick the psychological balance of what made him do uh, what he did. And really, uh, it's interesting because my wife sat in with me for like an hour and then she, and then she left. But I leaned over to her and I said during the running time, I said, you know, it's really interesting how throughout history, how one man is able to get so many to do what 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 he wants. And this is uh in a, uh, a case, you know, when the movie was over, Mike, in the credits, it said that three million souls were lost under the guidance of uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. I, I thought um, uh, Vanessa Kirby plays Josephine. Here's one of the things in this script, Mike. They take the relationship between Napoleon and Josephine, and they do make it an integral part of the movie from a psychological standpoint. He has a control over her. But yet she has a control over him, almost like 
I don't want to use the word a fetish, but you know, she says to him in the movie, uh, repeats a line that he used on her. You are nothing without me. I am everything in your world and has him repeat it. Now, man of this caliber, you know, going to war, conquering, you know, under the control of this woman. He obviously was in love with her. Her performance is is good. I think this is a film uh, come Oscar time. We'll get a lot of technical uh, award nominations. Do I think it's uh, worthy of winning, of, of getting nominated for Best Picture? I'm going to say no. I'd give it a six out of ten. I, it held my interest. But having said that, it was very equivalent of watching paint dry. It's a very, very slow paced movie. And I got to be honest with you, Mike, there's not a lot in the film that got my adrenaline pumping. I, I did find uh, his performance interesting and, and slightly unusual. I thought she was good. Um, the history of Napoleon in general, I got to be honest with you. I felt it was confusing the way they told it. Like if, if, if it's, it's basically one set piece tacked on to another, to another, it's really not building on anything other than, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, who's quote unquote, a movie star and an interesting one at that is playing this real life figure. Now I didn't know that there's never really been a successful movie of Napoleon launch. This would be the first forte into a $200 million big budget filmmaking based on his life. But when the movie ended, like I said, and I saw on, on screen that he's responsible for killing 300, uh, I mean, uh, 30 uh, million, oh no, 3 million soldiers, uh, 47,000 in one day. I know it's pretty, pretty sad uh, history. So a six out of 10, if you, if you like war films, is it worth seeing? Yeah, but I'd probably wait unless you want to see on big screen. Well, it sounds like Chuck that uh, it might be epic, but it's not quite the history lesson. Oppenheimer might've been earlier in the season. Uh, and I probably won't gather the weathering storm that Oppenheimer did in the summer. Thanks to Barbie. Uh, so overall, uh, Joaquin, you said uh, just another one of those just head scratching performances. I mean, is it? You said it was a little off center. No, but... it's a, it, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting performance. I just don't know what they were going for in this film. I don't think it really constitutes anything specific other than the screenwriter lays lays out one scene after the next. I don't think they really build on each other and like i said from a psychological point of view i didn't really understand what made him tick was he good bad or indifferent i don't think the movie or the screenplay really lays that out uh it's just King phoenix playing napoleon all right so that's napoleon and i will just warn people i chuck i, I turned on genie uh on peacock last night melissa mccarthy and what a blatant ripoff of elf and uh, Aladdin mixed into one with zero laughs and the holiday season somehow around it. I only bring it up, Chuck, because you know who wrote it? Um, Richard oh. Curtis wrote the film, the guy responsible wow. for Love Actually, with the talents of Melissa McCarthy. It is barely watchable, Chuck, um, and, and it's on Peacock right now. They're trying. I mean, I mean, the holidays are really forced in this film. It's really more of an Aladdin type film, but. Um, but basically, she's walking around New York City, much like Buddy the Elf did, not understanding anything. And, you know, they try to tug at the heartstrings. But boy, oh boy, it's just another example of how Hollywood just doesn't get it, don't, doesn't get it. And it, it really perplexing, uh, the screenwriter here. It must have been at the bottom of his pile, and he knew it was a holiday movie. And maybe Peacock, call, NBC called him up, said they needed something. I, I don't know. Uh, but I, I only bring it up because of the talent that was involved. But avoid Genie. If you can, 
Um, and uh, I'm sure many people will because it is only streaming right now. Chuck, got any uh, movie news or anything we need to bring up uh, this Thanksgiving heading into Christmas? What do we know? What do we want to know? Yeah, I mean, uh, a little bit surprising the other day on social media, actor Jackie Chan, who's now 69 years old, and actor Ralph Macho, uh, who's 62 years old, believe it or not, uh, went on social media announcing that uh, they will star in a new Karate Kid movie over at uh, Sony Pictures. Uh, Daniel LaRusso will be back, played by Ralph Macho. And Mr. Han, who was in the rebooted Karate Kid from 2010 with Jaden Smith, I guess Jaden Smith will not be involved. But I guess those that movie, 2010's Karate Kid, evidently in the hands of the producers, took place in the same universe they also made an announcement that they are going on a nation we don't see this much at all anymore nationwide search mike yeah for a new karate kid they're looking for a chinese american actor which i guess that's where the storyline will go i think it's going to take place in the states though but uh you know i was saying to you off air which is unique and, and interesting this ralph macho at 62 was 10 years older than uh than Pat Morita was when he shot the Karate Kid back in 1984. Boy, does time does time fly, huh? That that is quite incredible if you give it uh, any thought. And I'm a fan. I you know I the, the other Karate Kid movie wasn't bad. I actually thought it was no. I liked good. I liked it yeah. too. Listen, it's not the original '84 film, but it's solid. I think I think it has its merits. Yeah, it does. I mean, Jackie Chan I thought was really good. Yeah, in, in that film, you know, Jaden Smith. Uh, he was he was okay. He was fine. He was fine. I mean, he's not yeah. Ralph Macho, but he was fine. And it was they they you know the fact that they put you know uh, took the storyline to China. Uh, I I thought that was yeah you know a unique spin. So I did like that film. So uh, there there you have it. Now I I got a chance to I watched uh, there was a still release the other day online of ninety three year old uh, Clint Eastwood on the set directing Jura Number Two, which uh, appears that will be his last feature film. In the long-running amazing career of actor Clint Eastwood, it stars Nicholas Holt. And the same week, it was announced that Nicholas Holt has been cast by James Gunn in the same studio. So it appears the same studio wants to do business with Nicholas Holt, has been cast as Lex Luthor in Superman Legacy. Now, they've cast him as Lex Luthor. They have Superman. They have Lois Lane. I love the casting of those roles. They cast an actor as Jimmy Olsen. He looks good. Uh, another uh, An actress as, as another villain and a bunch of side characters uh i know you're lukewarm on the thought of more superhero movies but uh, this one if i'm excited about any of them mike i would say i could get excited about superman legacy thoughts on that well, and, if, and if i'm excited about any of the news i do like nicholas holt i thought he was great in mad max and and he's good mm -hmm. in the x-men movies as well and even way back when in about a boy he was good opposite of uh hugh grant I, so you know yeah, probably boyish, probably not that Lex Luthor we grew up on. And I don't know if they'll ever go down that route, Chuck. But um, if, again, enough's enough with these films. But at least if they're going to do something, uh, give me some inspired casting. And I do want to see a great actor in the role. Uh, but, you know, Jesse Eisenberg really didn't work for me. Um, Kevin Spacey was decent uh, in a movie everybody forgets. Uh, so I, it's never going to be Gene Hackman. So maybe we should stop wishing that it could be. Uh, probably, you know, I, I, I again, I, I had in my mind's eye when Zack Snyder, you know, did uh, Superman v. Batman and he cast Jesse Eisenberg as Lex Luthor. He went against the green with that casting. I, I thought he was a right. Uh, but I, I, I think, you know, a lot of people were you know, hell bent on saying you get Brian Cranston 
as Lex Luthor. The, the studio probably looks at him as a little bit uh, older to play that role. I mean, it appears, you know, Nicholas Holtz in his 30s, so they want to go younger. So we'll see. But I got to tell you, I, I do have faith that James Gunn will make a good movie. And let's be honest, he has to, because this is the most important movie, I think, in, uh, in, in, in I don't want to say in the history, but in the DCEU, at least these rebooted, right. uh, this is a very, very important film. Is this, if this one misfires, uh, they will have a hard time recovering. And, and it you appears, know, Chuck, you know, what would have yeah. been interesting too, is if I know Clint Eastwood going back to him real quick, obviously his age, it's surprising that the movie they're doing, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a court, courtroom thriller, um, probably a throwaway movie, you know, in any other respect for Clint Eastwood, it would have been cool for him to direct a reboot of dirty Harry with a new guy in the role and him as the director. I know it's probably impossible cool. for him to do those type of action movies, but I think some, some, something of a little bit more substance and merit than uh, just another, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to yeah. discredit the movie before it comes out, but you know, Understood. it just seems like all his other movies that he was churning out, like, you know, in, in, in the eighties and nineties, um, it doesn't seem like there's anything that's got some, some meat to it. He has a problem. And, uh, you know, you go back like a movie like blood work. I like that movie a lot, actually. Yeah. Uh, but you know, here's the thing. Uh, I like your idea. And let's say it was pitched to Warner brothers. Initially, I would think they might say, you know what, this is a really good idea. And then they start the, the concept of woke will come into play and the right. thought of doing a dirty Harry movie in 2023. I just don't think is viable for one of these studios, which is sad. Yeah, no, uh, you're I, right. I'd love and to see it, but it's you, just not—it's yeah. just not going to happen. You throw in the aspect of all the uh, all the civil rights and all the things we've gone through with with police and and everything. You're probably right. That type of character, uh, we don't want that to exist as much as it used to back in the '70s. I mean, it is a comic book character. Let's face it. This is not—you know—we are supposed to be able to spend our disbelief, but it's very yes. very few and far between where Hollywood does that anymore. They're just too scared and and stay away. I guess they they insult our intelligence and in thinking that. You know, we would take it quite literally that they're making a film like this, but whatever. Here, here's the problem. Here's a problem with the industry. Think about this: this Thanksgiving uh, holiday, like how many films are out there right now that you were clamoring to to get in your car, to turn the ignition on, drive to a theater, pay your you know ten or fifteen bucks, sit in a movie theater, and then drive back home. To me, I saw Napoleon because I saw it for the show. To be honest with you, it wasn't something right. I was overly excited about. But there's not a lot of films, you know, even throwaway movies. You know, buddy cop movies, uh, you know, just throw away well-made B movies. It's it's uh, it's just uh, what plays in a multiplex um, is just such a different animal than it was 30 years ago. And it's not not in a good way. I don't say it in a good way. It's not. No, not at all. And uh, and, and the December doesn't look much better unless you're a fan and think Wonka or yet yeah. another a comic book hero, Aquaman. Or or a, or a musical like The Color Purple can get you going. I don't know, Chuck. It's just uh, I will it, say I will say I will say this though. This newest Hunger Games movie uh, has actually done pretty well. It 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 did forty four million in weekend number one, and then this weekend in its five days, it's tracking around forty four million. So it's had very good legs. There is an interest in that. Listen, I I'm not rooting against anything. I want movies to do well. In theaters, and I think right. that's good. You know, I, I think it's good that at least there was a uh, there was a hunger, uh, quote unquote, uh, the pun. But people wanted to, the fan base has shown up. For, for we are going to get I, a Michael Mann movie on Christmas Day, Ferrari, right. which is getting good buzz, and the George Clooney movie, Boys in the Boat, that, looks good. 
here's the only problem. That movie stars uh, Adam Driver, and he's not exactly a, a box office. Uh, no, movie. but the star is above the title, and that's uh, Michael Mann. So I, yeah. you know, they're hoping the the uh, the subject matter will push it across the finish line, so so to speak. Uh, but the, the George Clooney movie looks good too. The boys in the boat, which is an old school kind of rah, rah, uh, world war two movie about the kids, uh, uh, doing the oars. Uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the skulls, uh, with, uh, Joel Edgerton. So that mm-hmm. looks good at the Berlin Olympics. So I, the rowing team from the university of Washington, go check the trail out. It looks pretty good, but you know, we did our, our, our holiday movie preview and, and leading up to Christmas, there's just not much. To, that's really i mean we're not talking there's no new james bond movie there's no, no you know there's none of that stuff and uh it's kind of like there's really nothing that's gonna like you said make me go in the car turn on the do, you know the one thing i might get in the car and go do december so. 6th on wednesday night go see the abyss in 4k that might get me to the theater to see that re-release everything else I, I eh. think that would be a, i think that would be a very good uh, idea let's do this some this day in movie history, I got three good ones. This day or this this week, November 20th, 1976, uh, a small film called Rocky hit theaters. And I was reading a footnote to this, Mike. This is what's interesting. When because St- everybody knows the story, but when Stallone held out uh, to, uh, on the script and wanted to star himself, they had to product production budget. If they would have got a named actor of two million dollars, when he uh, held out and and insisted that he be the star of it. They lowered the budget to $1 million and mm-hmm. the, mo- the movie winds up doing $225 million uh, at, at the box office. So that's a 225 fold over its initial budget. Uh, you're not going to see that anymore. I actually remember seeing Rocky at the Ebony movie theater in Brooklyn, New York uh, back probably was seven. It had to be 77. I don't think it was its initial release because movies didn't come out. 35 millimeter reels didn't come to lo- local theaters all at the same time but i remember how motivated and inspired i was when i saw rocky in the theater did you see it in the theater rocky yeah i, I actually did i remember my Wait, dad where did you come, see it i can't remember where it was mm-hmm. probably the cross bay um mm-hmm. but i i my dad came home he had seen it i'm uh, thinking that he was the only one that was ever going to see it came home he's got the whole family together no we're all going to go see this i want you kids to see this movie now and uh boy oh boy uh, I, I remember that like it was yesterday and I remember, um, what do you call it? The Rocky two, like, oh boy, the fans, just everybody going crazy in theaters. How, how's this one? Mike, November 24th, 1993, Miss Doubtfire hits theaters produced for $25 million. The movie grosses 441 million hmm. worldwide. Uh, the, the original author of the book. Her name was Anne Fine, pitched to the studio that she wanted Warren Beatty to play Ms. Doubtfire. Wow. She thought he would be. She thought because he had an image of being a womanizer, she thought it would be a lot of fun to see him wearing a dress. Uh, I, I can see where they could have went in that direction, but honestly, thank God they cast Robin <laughs> Williams in uh, in in really one of his absolute uh, signature roles. Roles, yeah. which I find interesting about this movie, it was not. It, it, I think it was like seventy percent positive. Uh, back in the day, there were some naysayers, but I, I don't know what they were naysaying at because this movie from beginning to end is wildly entertaining. And, and what I think makes it work is that their marriage in that film between Robin Williams and Sally Field, the characters they played, was very real. 
And yeah, it, I think it, I, it, it, it stung when you watched it, and and that's what gave that movie its power. Besides, it had, some, yeah, it had some weight to it. Uh, yeah, I, I think maybe the running time might have turned see some people off the, the, the when the movie goes on vacation with Pierce Brosnan. Some of that stuff it just runs a little long. But I thought Chris Columbus and Robin Williams were perfect team, and 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 you're right, Sally Field more than just a supporting role. She's really there's a lot to her character in this film. Uh, yeah, I, you know, uh, Mrs. Doubtfire and Good Morning Vietnam. Let's and face how it, funny is Har- how fun how funny is Harvey Weinstein in that movie? Oh, uh, he's so funny. Yeah, it's, it's it's a classic. It's a comedy classic, and and it's good for the whole family too, which is kind of nice too. That you know, everybody everybody can watch it together. And Pierce Brosnan before he was James Bond in a nice little role too. Yeah, I agree. Uh, again, Rocky shot for a million dollars. Miss Doubtfire shot for twenty five million. Now, 1987, uh, November 24th, 1987, a movie called Trains, Planes, and Automobiles is released in theaters. Steve Martin, John Candy, directed by John Hughes, which really was against the grain, a little bit something different for John Hughes, especially in the director's chair. They shot it for $15 million, wound up grossing about around, right around 50 So it was profitable. Obviously, that movie has stood the test of time, gone in an immense popularity regarded as one of the great thanksgiving movies not a lot of great thanksgiving movies this is no, regarded as, the as one. one of them yeah great work by steve martin and, and john candy and i just want to ask you a question you know we just went over three movies right and all were produced at a realistic budget all were profitable what and i keep you know i keep hopping on the same drum but what has happened to the industry where you have to spend what they spend on movies now. I mean, it's just, it makes literally no, it makes no sense. Like I, how they can't keep course to at least some semblance of control, because I just think the industry is like a runaway train of out of control budgets. And, you know, you, you take uh, Napoleon, which is $200 million of Apple money. And you take killers of the flower moon, which is 200 and something million of Apple money. Those movies are not going to be profitable theatrically. You know, I was listening Apple, to a, Apple could was, afford it. Yeah, that's the thing. I was listening to a, a, a podcast when Ron Perlman was on it, and he yeah. says the, the problem is, is much like when the renaissance for uh, like uh, HBO and cable TV came out, all the good writers, you know, they couldn't get their movies financed by producers anymore like they did in the 70s. So they went to uh, HBO and Showtime and all these things. All great writers are writing things for streaming networks now. So you can't find the great writers that are going to get their script financed by a movie company. that's going to back it and put it up on the big screen. So you're going to get shows like Ozark. You're going to get shows with really good, fascinating writing. And then the writers, it's, it's more, uh, it's more enjoyable for them to flesh out these characters and make it a, a six part, eight part series. So Ron Perlman was making a point is we can't get good scripts now that are going to get financed by these companies. A, cause they don't want to really make them, but B because mm-hmm. all the great writers are finding vehicles on these streaming networks. And it's hard to argue. I mean, if you're a writer and, and you've got a great script and you can get Netflix to pay you money to make it an eight part series, um, you're going to likely do that. And, you know, you got a guy like, um, Brian Helgeland, who's who just released a movie that's coming out on Paramount Plus with Tommy Lee Jones and Ben Foster mm-hmm. called Finest Kind. That's a movie that would have gotten put in theaters in the 70s and 90s easily. And and now he he just like, you know, why bother if finance if they're not going to get the financing for it uh, from Paramount uh, from like Universal or Warner Brothers, but they will from Netflix and Amazon. Well, 
yeah, take my script. Let's go make it. These actors are going to be in it. They're not going to say no to it. That's the problem, Chuck, is that there's yeah, no yeah. there's no uh, desire for Warner Brothers to find a real good original script or no desire for a screenwriter to pitch to Warner Brothers anymore. Here's the, here's an issue. Uh, I, I when when Clerks three when Kevin Smith did Clerks three, he said the reason this movie will go on streaming, and I've heard other uh, d- small directors in the industry talk about this because there's so many of these companies churning out productions of you know one and two million dollars, and you could catch them on on demand. Right? And uh, the, here's the thing: if you want somebody to know you have made a movie, it costs you a minimum of thirty million dollars because that is what a marketing campaign for any film will cost just to start $30 million. Yeah. So to, to, to go to do a full blown television, radio, social media campaign, it's $30 million. So you, before you even shoot the film, you're $30 million in the hole. So if your production budget is 120, you've got 30, you, you know, you're talking, uh, you're talking almost, uh, you know, $100 million. That's 300 and, Forty million dollars just on on the break even maybe more so I mean again when we look at these movies shot for a million dollars and twenty five million and fifteen million you know that was a viable model if I was an investor if I backed a studio yeah. I, I I would be excited about a lot of these projects you know think about this I want you to think about this when they were writing the checks out however wire transfers on the budget of indiana jones and the dollar destiny and it got up to 295 million dollars there had to be a point where they, they whoever was writing those checks out almost had to vomit right it's almost like oh my god like like what are we doing here like mm-hmm. this is just not this is just nutty nutty money how you know this is it's just not worth it it's just not worth the only movie that in my opinion would be worth a 300 million dollar budget would be an Avengers movie if you bring back Robert Downey Jr. That's it. There's nothing yeah. else. Yeah, not no doubt about it, Chuck. It's uh, it, it it is again. We fall into the same conversation that we always seem to have on this show about well, we wish we wish things were the way they were. You know, um, you're gonna great interview with Andrew Davis coming up in just a little bit. Um, harking back to his career, which he's made quite a few good movies, which made me think of Tommy Lee Jones, Chuck, because, you know, Tommy not only has uh, a new movie on Amazon Prime, and I told you about one that's coming out on Paramount uh, in, in a couple of weeks, uh, but he starred in, you know, and I, I compiled the 10 best Tommy Lee Jones performances for me. Three of them were directed by Andrew Davis, Chuck, so why not try to tie these two together and do our favorite performances from Tommy Lee Jones, who, yeah, like I said, it continues to work, Chuck, as he uh, is 77 years old, yes. um, still performing, and uh, go check out the bur- burial. It's a it's a pretty good drama uh, with some tinges of comedy with Jamie uh, Jamie Fox too. It's a pretty good movie. But you know, in my ten through six, two of those movies, uh, one comes in at number eight, one is seven, directed by Andrew Davis. Underrated is the package. Look, that's one of the best Gene Hackman movies that he was churning out a ton of movies in the eighties. This one gets lost because there were almost too much Gene Hackman, but the package is a real good thriller action movie takes place, uh, during, uh, uh, the winter in Chicago. It's got great performances from both Gene Hackman, but also as the hitman, uh, Tommy Lee Jones, well directed by Andrew Davis. Check out the package. It's an underrated thriller with a great chase scene. And while Gene Hackman's in a car in a chase scene, uh, it always harkens back 
to the French connection. That's my number eight. We talked about it last year. My number seven was under siege again with Andrew Davis, you know, and you look at his IMDB too, Chuck under siege was kind of a resurgence for Tommy Lee Jones. He was a little bit under the radar for a bit there um, as a great character actor would pop up and always give a good performance, but it wasn't until under siege that he started getting big paychecks and big roles um, like two roles that are at my 10 and nine and that space Cowboys is a number 10. I thought other oh, four cool. performances of the mm -hmm. uh, elder statesman. I enjoyed Tommy Lee Jones the most in that film um, and volcano at number nine. If it wasn't for under siege, I don't think Tommy Lee Jones even sniffs volcano with the momentum he right. built. You might With be right. The momentum he had built and another movie, which comes into number six for me. So I kind of jumped around a little bit, but his performance in the client, I thought was solid. Uh, great performance opposite students and random. A great thing about, uh, you know, and we'll talk about it probably later on as we get higher on the list. Great thing about Tommy Lee Jones. He's a foil in some movies, but he's really, you don't root against him because he's such a good actor and he gives such a great performance and much like the fugitive, which we'll talk about in the client. It's the same thing. He's yes, technically against Susan Sarandon, but a lot for the right reasons too. So great performance. So my 10 through six space Cowboys, volcano, the package under siege and the client. And I would think a few of those are on your list. Absolutely. My number 10, I went with the client also. I, I thought, you know, this is one of those roles that, that fit him like a glove. It's, it's mm -hmm. almost like, you know, it's like he, he could play, he could dance, not a, uh, not what you would call a villain, but you know, he, he's playing the other side, obviously of the hero and of the, of the piece, Susan Sarandon. I, I thought their, their chemistry as actors uh, bouncing off each other was really good. It was directed by Joel Schumacher. I, I yep. regard that as a good movie and, and I like it. My number nine, I, I went with his Agent K and in, in, in Men in Black. Obviously, one of the most important franchises of, of his career. I thought he had great chemistry with uh, Will Smith. These movies were very successful uh, financially and really made Tommy Lee Jones, I think, a household name in a lot of res respects beside a movie like The uh, Fugitive. My number eight, I went with Lincoln from 2012. You know, put Tommy Lee Jones in the Spielberg biopic and you elevate the material. This is a really good film uh, yeah. from 2012. That's my number eight. Number seven, I went with Under Siege. Uh, it was clear Tommy Lee Jones was having a, having a blast. I, I think Andrew Davis gave him carte blanche on just having let, letting loose, having good, a good time. And you'll see in my interview, he actually talks about uh, uh, the screen time that he gave uh, Tommy Lee Jones versus Steven Seagal. He sort of volunteered it without me uh, asking, which I thought was very interesting. And my number six, I did go with Space Cowboys because, again, that's one of those movies that I, I wish they made now yeah. you know they don't make those, those are the type of movies we need uh it, it's not you know it's not an, an oscar movie it's not a movie that's overly important in the annals of, of film but it's a good entertainment with a good cast and it was fun to see him bounce off eastwood and, and D donald sutherland and, and james garner so that's my number yeah. six it is funny you get movies like that back in the day and i even like las vegas as well with the reuniting old act but you get movies like the 90 or 80 mm. for brady now which is absolutely the most atrocious thing ever put on film and and instead <laughs> of you know you, you can't capture the same thing you can capture it, it with a good script like space cowboys speaking of good scripts chuck my number five is the company men which stars uh of course uh, uh tommy lee jones is gene mcclary all-star cast here chuck the company men about downsizing of companies with ben affleck kevin costner uh chris cooper all overwhelmingly so good in this film is directed and written by john wells it's a heavy subject matter 
as well, Chuck, with, um, you know, the character Chris Cooper plays is really tough to watch at times, but check out this flick. I'm sure you might've missed it, but the company men, real good performances, but Tommy Lee Jones as the elder statement of the company, just trying to hang on by a thread is so good in this film. I love this film, Chuck. And here's one that people forget and probably need to go back and rewatch. I would agree. It's a solid film. Number, my number five is Volcano. And it, to me, this is, uh, you know, we both love the disaster genre. It came out the same year as Dante's Peak. This is one of those movies I, I could put on, you know, tw- twice a year and have a really good time with it. I, I thought Tommy Lee Jones, like he, he he's more uh, as much as a just a general human being in this film as any movie he's ever done. I think his chemistry with Anne Heche is really nice, actually. Uh, I, I just enjoy this film. He plays a good every ma- everyday man hero in, in this disaster film. And, you know, we're harking back to a day where, you know, the lead hero in a disaster movie was over the age of 40. So uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Volcano, Volcano with somebody number five. Yeah, it's a good flick. And uh, like you said, I, I like how you put it. He's probably the most normal everyday man he's ever played uh, on, on screen. Uh, my number four, uh, you know, a lot of people remember Javier Bardan in No Country for Old Men. And look, I actually loved James Brolin's performance. I mean, Josh's Brolin's performance in this maybe best out of all. But his Ed Tom Bell trying to track down the serial killer Javier Bardan in the Joel Nathan Cohen classic. Tommy Lee Jones, a top billing in this film as well. He is so good in this movie. He's great. Uh, great. Best picture. Uh, it, it, there's so many great things to say about it. He almost gets lost how good a performance he gives in this film because of what Javier Bardem does. But what a great, great film um, and and a great, great performance. I love No Country for Old Men. Is it on your list? Yes, my number two, actually. Yeah, I mean, what great writing, great performances. Again, you know, this is this is one of those Beck's pictures where you're like, yes, this was the best picture of the year. Yes, Barnum. I agree. Yeah, I, right? I, remember, so, I remember I remember sitting in a theater watching it. And I was like, I was completely on the edge of my seat. I mean, obviously, Javier Bardem, that character is, you know, the closest thing to Hannibal Lecter in terms of intensity yes. on a movie screen. But, uh, you know, uh, Josh Brolin was awesome. Tommy Lee Jones was awesome. And it's, I would say I, for me, I think it's the best the best movie of the Coen brothers, uh, at yeah. least for me. Hard to argue. Me. I know a lot of people would say. Uh, you know, the big Lebowski or something like along those lines, but it's hard to argue the heavy handed, uh, the deepest, uh, subject matter. Uh, it, it's a real good film. I, the only criticism I may have of it is, uh, I don't know if it has an ending, but everything else, I mean, it's, mm. it's a great, I, I just know, I just think they might've fell short of a great ending, but it's a fantastic film with unbelievable performances. Okay. My number four, I went with, uh, his role as Loretta Lynn's husband back in 1980, coal daughter. Not the most likable guy, but boy, he could play these roles to a T. Uh, a very good movie. He was a, a, a prominent player at Oscar time. Coleman, his daughter, Tommy Lee Jones gave great work in this movie in a supporting role. You know, way back when, too, he did some really good early work, like the Executioner's Song. Uh, uh, I remember that uh, The Park is Mine on HBO, where he takes over Central Park. On uh, I also remember Smash Up on Interstate 5. He plays a, a pretty mild-mannered uh, cop in that movie, opposite Robert Conrad, a somewhat of a disaster movie on TV. So he did a lot of great work early on, Chuck, but it was his... His role in Captain Avenger, the first Avenger, that got him to number three on my list. I just rewatched this film too. Okay. The the, yeah. the the gravitas that he adds to the film, 
um, and the heart that he also adds to the film as well. Uh, I just perfect casting in a in a role. Uh, you know, it could have been a throwaway role, you know, but it's not. He actually adds a lot to it. I love him as Colonel Chester Phillips. I only wish he found they somehow found a way to bring him back for some of the other ones, but he's really good in that original first Avenger um, and some of the great dialogue he has with uh, Chris Evans. Good stuff. I liked him at number three there. You know, what's interesting about that movie is that that's one of the first superhero movies that doesn't really feel over budget or massive in scope. It's sort of self-contained. Right. Uh, and, and it, and it works as a, as a good, is a good uh, story. Obviously, I would, the, the, I would say yeah. that whole series is like that, Chuck. Of the of all yeah. the trilogies and the big but I, you know, both you and both you and I think the the Soldier Winter Soldier might be the best superhero movie of all time. Um, it, it's because Marvel, of that. Sure. Yeah, yeah, it's it's because of that. It, it just keeps everything tries to keep everything as grounded as it possibly can in a superhero mm-hmm. movie. I would agree. My number three, I went with uh, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's role in Oliver Stone's JFK everybody's good in this movie. And again, this is one of those movies, Mike, they simply don't make anymore. You know, Alba Stone used to be a prominent voice in the film industry. You really haven't heard much of him uh, over the last decade. Obviously he's gotten a little bit older. He's not uh, directing film uh, anymore, but JFK was a terrific movie, uh, thought provoking on multiple levels. And when you add an actor like Tommy Lee Jones into the mix, uh, just makes, again, just makes the movie a better film. So that's my yeah, number three. It's my number two, Clay Shaw. It's like one of those few Clay movies Shaw. that he did that he actually go, goes into a role and you, he gets lost in a role. You almost forget it's Tommy Lee Jones a lot of part and some real good stuff there. Uh, I love his Louisiana accent. Clay Bertrand is Clay Shaw. And uh, yeah, you got an Oscar nomination for it as well. And just a fantastic, I mean, you talk about, you know, you bring up Napoleon and how it's done now. JFK, three hours. I, I don't think it felt like a half hour movie. I was so enveloped in that film, Chuck. What a wonderful film and one of the best of 1991. And a lot of it had to do with the fantastic performances. That was my number two. What's your number two? My number two is No Country for All Men. Yeah. And then our both of ours, I would imagine, at number one is Samuel Gerard, which he actually would yeah. do twice. But the original, yes. The Fugitive, where he shares time with Harrison Ford, is just stellar. Got him an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor as well. People forget he beat out John Malkovich, also a fantastic performance in the heat of the uh, in the in the line of fire. So two really great powerhouse acting performances, but in mainstream not, movies too. Yeah, in mainstream those, action movies. Those are great. Yeah. Those are, listen, I I love in the line of fire and John Malkovich's performance. To me, that's a ten out of ten film. That's yeah. a great movie. That was a and good I, year. And yeah, it was. Great. It was. And I, I feel the same way about The Fugitive, directed by Andrew Davis. You know, people scoffed when they said they were making a, a film version of the TV show with uh, David Jansen. And, and they said, how, how are they going to be able to pull this off? Well, here's how. You get a good script, two great lead actors, some really good action scenes, including the destruction of a train and some and a, and a chase scene in the middle of a parade in Chicago. And, of course, the epic finale on a rooftop in Chicago as well. Chuck, this is a, a near-perfect movie, and a lot of it had to do with his his great role as Samuel Gerard. Again, in, in another movie, he could be a bad guy, but he's not, and he actually it, it builds to a great team-up at the end for Samuel Gerard. And you know what else hap- helps in this movie? The actors around Tommy Lee Jones on the crew, 
They don't oh, yeah. outside of Joe Pantoliano. They're all good, but they're not recognizable and they all interact. That's why they right. made the sequel because that chemistry between that group of people, they were able to, to make uh, the next one with Wesley Snipes. It was good. It's not terrible, but it's, a, you no, know, it's U.S. Watchable. Marshals is okay. It is interesting to note the the performance that Robert Downey Jr. plays in U.S. Marshals. If you want to go check that out, right. but uh, I, you know, listen, Samuel, Gerard, you know, I, what can you say? I, I didn't ask him, but I am interested, I guess, why Andrew Davis didn't come back to direct that film. I'm curious if he, if he was uh, asked, but you'll hear in the interview, Mike, what's really interesting. Andrew Davis actually said much, much to my surprise that a lot of the fugitive was ad libbed uh, and that he actually said to me on air that his daughter wrote the scene where Richard Kimball saves that little boy in the hospital. Wow. Wow. Which I, I, which I was like, wow, it's really Really, really cool. But he he obviously had a great time making The Fugitive. He had immense respect for Harrison Ford. Ford was was great to the to the crew and a, a total professional. And he felt Tommy Lee Jones, you know, if 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 others bring their A game, he brings it too. And that's what he asked for. But uh, yeah, I think people will enjoy that interview with uh, Andrew Davis. It was a good one. And they really only shared two scenes together, you know, uh, Harrison Ford and, and Tommy Lee Jones. But this is what happens when you get powerhouse performance you know, performers like they are on screen together. And the great line too, is I didn't kill my wife. And he yells, I don't care. I mean, that, that is yeah. classic. And then psh, right off the side, I just a great, great movie. Well, why don't we get into it right now and listen to the wonderful, um, the interview that you did with Andrew Davis. You want to set anything up here for us, Chuck? I know he's promoting his new old film. Yeah. He's promoting a movie that he did his first forte into directing a low budget film. He shot for $300,000 back in 1978, which really captures the essence and the look of South Side of Chicago. He's a Chicago native. It's called Stony Island. I got a chance to watch it. I, I do it from um, multiple levels. It was a very interesting watch. He clearly has a love of it for multiple reasons for the people he met. His brother, Richie, is a star of it. He did a documentary uh, about 12 years ago on the making of Stony Island, which is available on YouTube, which is really, really good. But uh, I thought Andrew Davis was easily, Mike, one of the most intelligent people I've ever interviewed. It, it, it was uh, a, pl a, pl a privilege. And for those who might not know his uh, his other movies, um, but listen, he did a slasher film, The Final Terror, not horrible. Code of Silence, that's the best work Chuck Norris ever did. Obviously, Under Siege, best work that Steven Seagal ever did, but a couple mm -hmm. other movies too that you might get lost here. His last movie, which way back in 2006, I liked The Guardian with Kevin Costner and and uh, Ashton Kuster about the Coast Guard. I thought that was well made. Why he hasn't directed since? And remember, it kind of got lost Good in 9-11, but Collateral Damage, he teamed up with uh, Arnold yes. Schwarzenegger, kind of a mishmash, but a definitely watchable film. I think... Again, I'm, this is just pure speculation, but the way the industry works, I think, you know, you have a hit, you have a hit, and he had two massive hits with Under Siege and The Fugitive. And then he did uh, he did Chain Reaction with Keanu Reeves, which didn't yeah. do well. And then you have a couple more that didn't do well. And and then, you you know, it's just the studio system and your relationship with him, I, I think, changes. But yeah, he is a guy who I regard as a great director. A great director. Uh, and, and he did, I, I wish and he he did made more movies. And he did the kids' movie Holes, which is based yes, on which, the book. That was good, too. Has a, yes, has a very uh, sizable following, Holes, with Sigourney Weaver. All right, so let's hear from Chuck and Andrew Davis on Movie Moments. Very, very special guest, Chicago native Andrew Davis, the acclaimed director of such big hits as A Fugitive, Under Siege, Code of Silence, and Above the Law. 
Andrew currently re-promoting a film, his directorial debut, a movie called Stony Island that he shot back in 1978, uh, which is shot in the backdrop of uh, South Side of Chicago and the celebration of R&B music. To quote Andrew in a press release, he says it's a story of music, how it makes us one. Andrew, thank you very much for coming on the, sh- on the program. Thank you for having me. Okay, let's talk about Stony Island. I got a chance to watch it last night. I also watched you behind the scenes uh, uh, a featurette that you shot in 2012, and I thought both were fascinating. And I, I, my first uh, points on Stony Island, uh, I sort of, when I watched it, I loved the cinematography and I loved the look and how they use Chicago as a backdrop. In a lot of ways, it reminded me, I'm a Brooklyn Knight, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, so I always relate to a lot of films that are shot in New York City. And it sort of reminded me very much of, say, a Martin Scorsese movie, Mean Streets or Taxi Driver, or even uh, Joseph Sargent's 1973 thriller, Taking a Pelham 123, how it uses a city as a major character. Now, I know this movie is very important to you simply because it was your first film. It was shot on a budget of $300,000 which you raised uh, in your feature described from family and friends. It's sort of a love letter to music. Uh, Describe where you were in 1978, how this film got off the ground, and what it means to you in the annals of your overall career. Wow. Well, thank you for doing all that research and watching all those elements of the movie. Um, In 1978, I was a frustrated cinematographer who couldn't get in the union. And I decided there was, I had gone from working in Chicago as an assistant cameraman, and I graduated in 68 from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Roger Ebert was the editor of the Daily Illini in those days. And uh, I came to Chicago and started working, uh, loading magazines and working on commercials and documentaries. And I met a guy named Haskell Wexler through my parents that were friends with Haskell and through Studs Terkel, the great, incredible uh, writer and raconteur. And uh, Haskell was making a movie called Medium Cool. He was an Academy Award-winning cinematographer who had done In the Heat of the Night, Thomas Crown Affair. And so he hired me to work on a phantom unit loading magazines during the police riot in Chicago in the 68 convention. So that was Mm -hmm. a pretty gritty way to start in, in the industry. And after that, I started shooting commercials, and uh, and I, I won a Tony, uh, not Tony, uh, uh, award for shooting a commercial with Duke Ellington when I was 21 years old. So you I won a Clio. This, this real, I won a Clio exactly, and I, and I had this reel of commercials, and I came out to California, and I said to Haskell, you know, I want to be in the in the industry. He says, well, you know. It's really hard to get in the union, you know, but uh, he introduced me to a guy named Hal Ashby, the great director, who wanted me mm-hmm. to shoot second unit on Harold and Maud, and I couldn't get in the union. Anyway, to make a long story short, I decided, having seen Mean Streets and having seen American Graffiti, that I'm going to make a movie about where I grew up. And my brother was a white kid growing up in a black neighborhood who was putting an R&B band together. And he was handsome, and he was talented, and I said, I'm going to do a film about my kid brother. He was cheap, and he was, he was available, because I pulled him out of college. <laughs> and, 
my mother never, you know, there's in the documentary, he says, you know, my mother and father probably wanted me to be a doctor or something like that. He, he would have been a great doctor, but he became a musician. He says, but I, I, make, I heal people with my music. And you see him playing in front of 50,000 people in Grand Park, you know, you understand that. So, so I made this film about my kid brother growing up on the South Side, struggling to put a band together with his kid, with his buddy Stony Robinson, who lived down the street. And we were lucky to find the money by raising it uh, independently. And I found a guy named Gene Barge through a friend who was a producer who had been at Chess Records, whose rhythm section at Chess Records was Donny Hathaway and Maurice White, who later started Earth, Wind, and Fire. And Gene Barge was a great sax player. He was known as Daddy G with Gary and the U.S. Bond. School is out quarter three. Play it, Daddy G. That's Gene's solo. And wow. he became uh, the mentor to this band. And he brought a rhythm section that he was working with with Natalie Cole on her first album, you know, and, and which later won a Grammy. And so it's a story about struggling musicians meeting more sophisticated musicians and putting a band together and their journey to try to get off the ground. Now, you, your, your brother's in this movie, Richie Davis, uh, and it was really fascinating for me and a lot of fun because i, I got to be honest with you. I'm, a, I'm, I'm certainly a fan of your work. I think you're a great filmmaker. I was not really aware of this film. So when I watched it, to see Dennis Franz in the movie, Susanna Huff's Ray Dong, Ray Dong Chong, uh, who was a female lead in Commando when Arnold Schwarzenegger and did a movie called Soul Man. She's a very talented actress. I thought, to me, that was just a lot of fun to watch that. Now, just the memory of shooting the film, working with these people who obviously you're close to, uh, what would be the highlight of that, of that shoot overall? Well, just how everybody got to know and love each other, you know? I mean, it was a struggle. It wasn't like anybody was getting more money than somebody else because nobody got any really big, you know, it was basically enough to feed yourself, you know. And, right. and, and I think that it was, it was, we were making it up as we went along in some ways, which became sort of a template of, of you know, there's a, the Fugitive has a lot of improvisation in it. Holes doesn't, but the Fugitive did. And so I was able to work with non-actors and some talented young actors and great musicians and sort of let them do their thing and bring out what they had to show. And that was a lot of fun. It was very rewarding. And, you know, when the film was finished, we found somebody who wanted to buy it and release it. And right. we you know, got great rave reviews. I mean, the reviews on, the, on Stony Island were as good as any movie I ever did, including Holes in the Fugitive. And, wow. and so it got put out. But in those days... You know, white theater owners didn't want black kids coming into their theater. And they pulled the picture. And, and they renamed it My Main Man from Stony Island, which was not, you know, it wasn't a black exploitation film. It was a film about music in a common language. Right? And so, so the film, there was no VHS. There was no cable. There was, if it wasn't in a the theater in 1978, you couldn't see it. So now years no, later, correct. we did a documentary about the making of it, and now it's available on all these different platforms for people all over to see. And, you know, if they go to andrewdavisfilms.com, you can watch that documentary for free. And it's a great documentary. Uh, and I would recommend, by the way, uh, for people listening, we're on the line with director Andrew Davis. I would highly recommend anybody who watches Stony Island, one, you should watch it, Andrew Davis' first film from 1978. But that documentary gave me so much insight. It is a beautiful, perfect companion piece. And it really is a piece 
of history. Looking back, and one of the things, Andrew, that I would say about streaming, there's things I don't like about streaming. I, I want new movies to play in theaters. I think the collective experience between the audience and the film is a very special, unique cult cultural event in this theater that I cherish. But what I do love about streaming, it gives chance uh, a chance for people to see this movie, rediscover it on a digital platform. And, and it's really quite unique that 45 years later you're on the line with me re-promoting a film that was your initial baby uh, in 1978 I think that's an, an amazing an amazing thing I really do yeah well you know if you take first of all if you look at the film on a big screen and you listen to it with a good sound system it'll be rewarding you know it'll it'll feel don't watch it on your phone you know what I mean and uh, and, and I, the, I agree with you 100 percent screening we had a screening last week at the Gene Siskel Film Center in Chicago, and I heard it in 5.1. Mm -hmm. And the, the music is really hip. You know, it's it, not only the the music in the band, but the, the score, which was done by David Matthews, who was a great produce, jazz producer at CPI, right. with David Sanborn playing sax. And, you know, it's 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 got a lyrical kind of quality. You know, The Fugitive with James Newton Howard did the score to that. And it's got all these right. shots of the city and Tommy Lee and Harrison. Well, the same thing is, is going on in, in, in Stony Island. You get a real sense of the city, and you get to go on this journey with these kids uh, in subways and in rehearsal halls and stuff like that, making music. So it's a journey. You get to go to a time and a place that doesn't exist anymore and see young, yes, attractive young kids who are talented and wearing bell-bottoms and stuff, you know, and, and live a life. So when you watch that movie with a crowd uh, at the Gene Siskel Center, uh, in no in November, what was that like? What was the reception? How did people perceive? What 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 did you feel watching it with an audience? I felt like it was a wonderful introduction into a world that uh, people could be part of. You know, can and 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 whether you were eighty years old or you were sixteen, you could dig it. You know, even younger. And and it's got, it's got a really warm, touching message because it's about a mentor who helps these kids put this band together, and then you know they got to take care of him when he's not in good shape, you know. And uh, it, yeah, I agree. It, it resonates today. It resonates and, today and I got, with people wanting to get along with each other, you know. I I agree. That's the focal point and the message again on the line with Andrew Davis, claimed director of movies like The Fugitive and Under Siege, promoting uh, a re-release digitally of a film he shot in 1978 called Stony. Island. I just want to bring up, you know, when I think about the 1970s filmmaking, I'm, I'm 57 years old, Andrew, and I, I grew up in Brooklyn. Uh, one of the first big memories in my life was 1972. My parents took me to a single screen movie theater in Brooklyn, the Avalon. We sat in the balcony and we watched the Poseidon Adventure with Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine, which has become my all time favorite movie. And I look at the 70s and, and my memory, I was a little I was a little boy. But I, re you know, I remember if you go on YouTube, you could watch people standing on uh, around city blocks waiting online to get into the exorcist uh it was a different breed of filmmaking you take a movie like dog day afternoon uh sydney lamette's great film with al pacino the style and this type of filmmaking the film stock that well you know i got i gotta on. interrupt you you're you're talking you're talking about two directors who were big influences on me billy billy freed from, okay. from chicago who hired my <clears> father who's actually in stony island sure. who hired my father to be in a, one of his early documentaries that he made french connection which had a huge impact on me as a filmmaker Sid Sidney Lumet, who, you know, who, with an amazing career doing reality-based dramas, 
including Dog Day Afternoon and you know so many others. Another big influence, I mean, Norman Jewison, those kind of directors awesome. were the people that, that I looked at, you know, and Haskell Wexler was the guy who shot films for those guys and uh, also influenced me. So there's a, there's a quality and look to, the, to my films that goes back yes. to that. You know, and I had a, you know, the Fugitive's got a different rhythm and a different pace than those films have, but there's a quality to trying to keep it honest. And that's what Stony Island is about. It's about an honest look at what kids were going through in those days. And and again, like I said, it's like a time. It's literally like a time capsule. Stony Island is like a time capsule that captures a place in the time on film that no one could ever take away from you. Just let's re- reminisce, reminisce real quick about uh, the fugitive thirtieth anniversary. I know you did a commentary for his four K release. A, a 92, uh, 92 you do under siege. Ninety three, the fugitive. Give me just uh, one one or two minutes on that period in your life big studio filmmaking uh real quick i just got an interesting question when you made under siege and the fugitive one were there test screenings of those films and were there any studio interference or you were or did you have carte blanche to basically create the, your movies the way you wanted to i was very lucky to make those movies the way i wanted to i was very lucky i mean under siege you know we i done above the law and they said, "Put Seagal back with Davis," and uh, you know, mm-hmm. and and you know, he he had become a big big shot, you know, those days, you know. And I had to do all kinds of things to make him smile, you know. But Tommy Lee <laughs> Jones is an under siege more than Steven Seagal. Tommy Lee Jones is in I the movie that, yeah. more than Tom than Steven. Anyway, and Harrison, you know, I, I was able to bring Tommy onto the fugitive. He later won an Academy Award, and Harrison was great. Yeah. So I I I had you know we we made up. The fugitive as we went along in some ways my sister helped come up with came up with a plot about the drug protocol she was a nurse and i needed some other motivation wow, okay. to make a doctor get in trouble so anyway those were the highlights of having oh, studio it. support and great talent yeah and real quick your experience working with gene hackman on the package gene hackman's my all-time all-time favorite actor give, give me your thoughts on working with well he was film. gene hackman was a was a was a tough guy for a young director but i learned a lot and 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 Tommy and I made a good movie with Gene Hackman. That 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 film reverberates today. That and I, I just wrote a novel called Disturbing the Bones, based upon the themes of the package. It'll be out next summer. Very good, Andrew. An absolute pleasure, Andrew Davis. Go check out Stony Island on digital, folks, and his featurette, the documentary. Uh, it's a perfect way to uh, view those. Uh, films. Andrew, thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure talking to you. Best no Ian Stoney. S-T-O-N-Y. No Ian Stoney because it's a street name. Okay, man. Thanks so much. Uh, this is Chuck Curry. You just listened to my interview with director Andrew Davis uh, and his re-release of his 1970 movie, Stony Island. Thanks for listening to Movie Moments with Chuck Curry and Mike Rags. Download and listen to an archive show or be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts to hear our new episode.